This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Vernon Burton, who is Judge Matthew J. Perry, Jr., Distinguished Professor of History at Clemson, and Peter Eisenstadt, who is an affiliated scholar with the Department of History at Clemson. We're going to talk about their latest book entitled Lincoln's Unfinished Work, and it's based upon a conference that was held at Clemson. So, gentlemen, with that introduction, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here, Walter. Well, let's talk about the conference, how it came about and what you all intended. Well, I had um, always wanted to do a conference like this, dealing with Lincoln's unfinished work. You know, in his two greatest speeches generally considered, uh, the Gettysburg Dress and the second inaugural, Lincoln spoke of the unfinished work. And for me, that had always been the unfinished work in race and race relations in America. So I had always wanted to do a conference exploring that meaning and to encourage people, let's finish this work that Lincoln called upon us to do. At that time, he said, this is the work for other people besides just the president and calling on individuals to do it. And I thought there was no better place to do it than Clemson University, which, of course, had been founded on John C. Calhoun's plantation. And it was uh, Clemson himself who gave the land, who had been from Pennsylvania, but became Secretary of Agriculture of the Confederacy. And the most, at least that time, celebrated graduate was Strom Thurmond, who had led the Dixiecrat Party. And like with my arguments about Lincoln, which you and I have discussed before, Lincoln was not born the great emancipator, but through education, through learning, and in the broadest sense of education, he, at the end of his life, was leading the nation toward a better place on race. So I think education is central. Lincoln believed that it was central for democracy itself. And uh, I think it is central today. And that's what we were trying to do in the conference, which included high school uh, students and high school teachers. All right. And speaking of education, I want to parse words. Let's look at the words that you use. Let's just take unfinished. It's got any number of definitions, does it not? Absolutely. Peter? Yeah. Unfinished can be incomplete. It could be... um something a little rude, someone's unfinished. The word that really is complicated is work. As we say in either introduction or the afterward, it's one of the most complicated words in the English language. If you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, there are about 360 different senses of the word work from something physical, something mental, something having to do with physics. There are religious connotations to it. Um, It's an incredibly complicated word. And I think when Lincoln invoked unfinished work, he was speaking about it in a number of senses. First, Lincoln was a laborer, and a job needs to be finished. If you're digging a canal or building a bridge, Doing it halfway is not going to solve any problems. You have to finish the job. And then there's the sort of work that never really is finished, that you get to one stage and you need to go further. And I think Lincoln was talking about it. And I said there's also a religious, you know, works and faith and things of that sort distinction. And I think Lincoln was drawing on all of these senses when he spoke about the unfinished work. And... The unfinished work was American democracy, yeah. the and, nation. And and I think if you understand Lincoln, and that's the context I was doing the conference, um, Lincoln once said that if he would be remembered for anything, it would be for the Emancipation Proclamation. That was his greatest account. But I think that's really, as a historian, you look at it, it is an introduction of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, which I argue is that Lincoln took the Declaration of Independence, which is sort of our mission statement, I would argue, for the United States, and put it in 
to the Constitution, our rule book. Now, of course, particularly the 14th and 15th Amendment is after Lincoln is dead, but that's part of that unfinished work. And part of our unfinished work is to make sure that justices read the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments as just as important as the First and Second Amendment. And if you read those broadly, to read these broadly, because they are what Eric Foner, who has was one of the keynotes at our conference, has called the second founding. It changes the Constitution dramatically. So that's just one narrow sort of a, a legal definition of that unfinished work and what it is. Well, over time, since Lincoln's death, he has been interpreted, misinterpreted, understood, misunderstood, represented, mis- misrepresented, and you covered all of those at your conference. And there are any number of essays. I picked out a few because we only have an hour mm-hmm. to discuss. And I think probably my favorite, I enjoyed all of them, but I really enjoyed Lincoln's sense of humor. <laughs> so let's talk about that essay for a few minutes. Yeah. And I think it's so important. This is Richard Carradine, who's a friend of Walter's and and mine, and now a friend of Peter since we've introduced him and who has written on Lincoln's humor. But I think it's so important. Can you imagine presence today using humor, but also uh, the contrast to the abolitionists? It helps us understand where Lincoln was. The abolitionists were very serious. I mean, they, they, you just can't imagine abolitionists joking or telling stories as Lincoln. And as you know from another book, I actually argue this is part of his Southern cultural mm-hmm. heritage and upbringing, which is a slightly different take on it. But at least according to Carradine, it certainly helped Lincoln survive uh, the rough, tough world of politics, which he was a master at. But it was his way of self-deprecating humor often or to try to break a silence. But it's also, I think, part of his worldview. And Peter and I were talking about this on the drive down. Peter, you want to add to some yeah, of the, the ideas of why we like this essay so much? Right. I've learned that, as I mentioned to Richard, that the idea of someone publishing the abolition of the joke book is probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> that it, it, you know, and and I think Lincoln approached the question of slavery from this perspective. And I think it reflects his religious views as well, which are complicated, but he certainly was not an evangelical Christian. His, his moral seriousness came out of his sense of human nature, which I think is very much reflected in his humor. And as, as Richard argues in this essay, it's an absolute key to, as everybody has recognized, that Lincoln had an extraordinary sense of humor. And it, it was a way for him to, to keep his head about him, particularly when he was president. You know, it, 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 it's one of his defining characteristics. And, and I think Richard did an excellent job in sort of dissecting its nature and its roots in popular culture at the time, the sort of joke books that he was reading and the humorous that he enjoyed, and and, and it's quite an enlightening essay. And can I just take a moment to add uh, one of my favorite Lincoln stories and one that I used to argue he was a Southerner and saw himself as a Southerner, and it gets at his humor as well. Uh, African-Americans had come to petition Lincoln to meet with him to equalize the pay of black and white soldiers and and particularly black workers. And there was a group, and Lincoln, as normal, liked to joke. And so he said at the time, he said, aha, so you want me to raise the pay of Cuffy. Now, the word Cuffy at that time was the kind of word that uh, not quite the N word today, but pretty close to it. And it was insulting to black people. There was a young black man in this group. He was 19 years of age. And he said, Mr. President, that is a word that is offensive to African-Americans. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And we do not use it. And Lincoln, the president of the United States, First of all, it was unusual to be meeting in the White House with a group of African-Americans one of the first time. And he apologized to this 19-year-old man. He said, I am sorry. He says, you know, I am by birth a Southerner, 
And I had no idea that this word was offensive. And that's it. But he never uses the word again. This is his education process. And one month later, pay was equalized. But it, it tells you this, also the seriousness and how he understands when he crosses a line and is able to sort of do something about it. So I love this particular story of Lincoln and where his humor had got out of bounds. And the result is he makes progress on things. Well, contemporaries, particularly those New England abolitionists, they're prim and proper, treated Lincoln as a rube. Uh, his humor was considered rough, ill-mannered, but they couldn't handle him because all of a sudden he might throw Aesop back at them. Yeah. Uh, but it, it that, you know, I just was interested also in the fact that uh, a lot of things are attributed to Lincoln that he never said. <laughs> and I think you at one point you said, other than Yogi Berra, nobody has. <laughs> right. Well, there have been several books about misquotations. Mm-hmm. And Yogi Berra and Abraham Lincoln had the longest sections in the book about things attributed to them that they never said. Well, so. and particularly Lincoln's continues, such as you'll see memes on the internet about don't trust the internet, uh, Abraham Lincoln, or things <laughs> like that. How did the discussion go when when the, the paper was presented? Well, th- this is a good opportunity. I don't have it right in front of us in the book. It We have a website. I'm very proud of this because of Clemson doing this for me. We had the entire conference of 40 presentations videotaped, and they're now on a website, so you can actually go see it. There were two papers by Richard, but you can actually see the responses and everything. But, of course, this is a such a good essay and about humor that it was one that sort of sparked, I think, uh, people just like the essay and the story so much. And as you know, Richard is a great writer as well as he also uh, is in theater and does theater and drama. So he gave a great presentation. It was well, well received by everyone. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Vernon Burton and Peter Eisenstadt about the essays in their book, Lincoln's Unfinished Work. Earlier, before we got into the studio, we were talking about teaching in the schools today. Teachers were invited to attend this conference, and then you had special teacher workshops. And I was just thinking that Lincoln's humor would be a good way for a teacher to get certain points across. Exactly. And we did do uh, the the last day on Saturday, I believe it was December the 1st, I did the whole afternoon was a workshop for teachers in South Carolina, and the the and I had uh, Heather Cox Richardson did the keynote for that. Uh, but then Jim Lowen worked with me to do this teachers workshop, and I just want to say, Walter, these teachers, particularly these public schools, are doing God's work in this state and everywhere else, and it is hard. And now the states are making it even more difficult. How do you teach about? a history that's so important, but it's difficult with black and white children in the classroom. And so they were just begging for help and ways to do it. And of course, like you said, the the humor of a Lincoln is one, the idea of growth. And for me, and I, I think you and I have talked about this four degree, primary sources. What what did people say at the time as opposed to what we have created or even what historians have said they said? One of the things that I emphasize, let's, let's don't tell people how to think, but let them read those documents and make their own interpretations. One of the things that makes teaching in South Carolina, it's not really easy, but the documents produced in South Carolina, which relate to American history, are, are so numerous that it's hard not to be able to, to come up with a document on almost any subject. I would I would agree, and we're lucky that way, uh, or fortunate, I think, in terms of even other states. So it's an exciting opportunity for teachers if they're allowed to use the documents. When you use a primary document, it's what was said in 1808 or 1861 or 1898. It's not what Vernon Bird or Walter Edgar said it was. It's what Ben Tillman or Judge McGraw. Or John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun. It's what they said. And I think that's important, Walter, that we need to take them 
in their time, put them in context. That's what one of the important things historians do is not just change over time, but we contextualize these sources. And uh, we can't lose that. Uh, and I think that's important in teaching and is critical for our understanding of how government works and democracy works. And um, I, I think you and I have agreed on this before. I've often said two things changed the American South in our lifetime. One was air conditioning, the other the Voting Rights Act. And yet the way that we put the emphasis on STEM education, which I'm not denying is important, but downplay the importance of history that we now understand better how air conditioning works than how the Voting Rights Act works or our government works. Yeah. And, 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 and the other thing about primary sources is you understand how history works and how history is written. And history is not just people sitting around offering opinions about this or that. Real history is when historians interact with sources. The sources are often ambiguous um, and complicated. It's not simply a matter of this happened this way. It seems to me if you can introduce and inculcate students, they're, they're becoming in their own way historians. Because documents do not interpret themselves, documents need to be be read, and there's no way to do history without reading without primary sources. Historians know that. I don't know if average people really do. So I think it's important in all sorts of ways to read primary sources. But to get at the central issue in this era of what's become alternative facts, history as opposed to just even journalism or newspapers or certainly TV and, and certain stations, history has to be based in evidence and an honest evaluation of the evidence. We cannot make history as historians say what we want it to say. We have to be guided by those primary sources and that evidence and contextualize them. And, and unfortunately, uh, history can unsettled people. Now, and, and just one last comment on this, that because of our media now and because of the availability of primary documents has vastly expanded over what, you know, I mean, you, you wonder how historians today will have to look at Twitter and Facebook and things like that to get a full sense of what's happening in America now. And I think this inundation of information requires people to think through it, and historians can provide that sort of guidance, and history provides that sort of guidance, and I think it's absolutely necessary in, in our times today. So much of what would be foundational to traditional historians, the material's not there anymore. People have learned that they don't put it in writing. Uh, although some folks still get confused and they put things in emails that they wish they had not. But I mean, a lot of times, state governments, federal government, you may be supposed to save things, but how do you go through and make sure all of those emails are sent? And what on earth is poor Eric Emerson and the State Archives going to do with all of that? You know, it's it's really a mission impossible. But let's get back to more historical yeah. <laughs> documents. Uh, because Documents, and we're talking about documents that Abraham Lincoln created, have been part of the story of how he's interpreted. And I'm going to the Gettysburg Address, uh, his second inaugural, and then his letters. One was to, oh gosh, the newspaper. Horse Green. Yeah. How his views about democracy and all Americans has been kind of skewed, particularly over about the last 50 years. You want to start off with that? Which one of you? Either um, one of us. Uh, right. Well, there's, the there's... Greeley letter is is uh, most interesting because one of the essays by the late Jim Lowen looks at this in particular to show that uh, when that letter is quoted, of course, it is always leaves out Lincoln's explanation of why he is saying this. And this is one of, there's a big debate on Lincoln that goes back, you know, was Lincoln racist? And I think Lincoln would say, yes, I am, as everybody else probably was, but that he was motivated about preserving the union and didn't really care about what happened to enslaved people. 
are freedom and the letters always quoted if the section where he says if i could win this war by freeing all the people i would if i could preserve the union that is win the war by continuing slavery i would or you know a combination so that's always used as one of the there are like three things i've traced out over time is so the big criticisms of lincoln where lincoln went from the great emancipator to the great white honky, particularly among some groups of uh, of historians and others. Now, when he wrote that letter to Greeley, Horace Greeley, right, Emancipation Proclamation was already in the works. And that's exactly where I was going. Not only in the works, he had a draft of it in his desk. He's already discussed it with his cabinet and other months before, and they were convinced that he needed to wait to a time when it did not look like the Union was losing. Uh, and, and that's why he waits after Antietam, which I'm not sure it was a Union victory, but at least mm. it was close to a it draw. And his commitment, as he told people, you know, uh, that God had given him a sign that this is what he was going to do. And he becomes to believe in this very much, and it explains a lot of what he does afterwards uh, as he becomes committed. He was never an abolitionist, but the first of that letter says clearly, I hate slavery. I am against slavery. If I had my way, I would do it. But as president, I am bound by the Constitution. And so he didn't, did not feel that there was a way he could do it except through what we think of an executive order, and that's why he fought so much for the 13th Amendment afterwards, because he knew that could be overturned. And there were rumors, and historians debate this, that uh, Roger Tony already had started working to really overthrow it. It was a very actually brave thing to do because he was told by his very best friend that if, if you do the Emancipation Proclamation, in fact, if you don't negate it after it was done, then Kentucky will go with the Confederacy. So once he made that decision, to by once black soldiers fought, when they fought for the Union, for Lincoln, that was the line that if you fought for your country and from there on, he begins to, to argue that. But I also say it's an example of where he was. In a, he was a master politician. Why did he do this? Because he was trying to bring the country to where he was. He published this letter in a conservative paper so it would reach the other people that may not listen to him otherwise. Sort of a, a lesson to us today about the different newscasts. We pick the one, the the station we want to listen to, but he was trying to reach these other people. And it was his process of bringing them along on race. And he does exactly the same thing at the end of his life about black citizenship and black voting. Okay. Peter, one of the other documents that comes up about Lincoln and race were his comments during a debate in Charleston, Illinois, in an election campaign, which on the face of them are racist and flashing red letters. Yes. I don't think it's one of the high points in Lincoln's career, those statements. It was said in in the south of Illinois, which was a fairly conservative place, and and as, as Vernon said, it, it, it's one of the statements held up against Lincoln for his racism. You know, uh, many people have said, we, we covered this briefly in the afterward, that the remarkable thing about Lincoln was his capacity for growth and learning. And wherever he was in 1858, and I think sort of like the Greeley letter, it was a very political statement that he was doing for a particular political purpose to, to win votes, obviously, in, in, in the contest with Douglas. I, I, I think he really grew during its presidency. And we say in the afterwards, we call it Lincoln's unfinished work, but it's not his unfinished work alone. I think Lincoln experienced during the war, the plight of black people, the experience of slavery, speaking to people like Frederick Douglass and others, and I think he learned and he grew. And it's famous people like Frederick Douglass, anonymous, formerly enslaved people who ran away. It's, 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 it's the unfinished work of America. And Lincoln obviously was in a position to do more about it than anybody else because of the virtue of his office. 
but the new birth of freedom, as Lincoln called it, coming out of the Civil War, was by no means, you know, came out of Lincoln's head like Athena. It was an organic thing that developed during the Civil War. But here's one thing we need to remember and people forget. When Lincoln said those things, he never backed off, though, from African-Americans should have the same civic rights. That is, that they should have the same rights and that any African-American or any other person should go as far in society as their ability was, took them. And this is one of his fundamental beliefs was that sort of meritocracy. And one of the people that Lincoln was influenced by was none other than the great hero of South Carolina, Robert Smalls, later congressman, the man who introduced uh, the bill that brings education, public education to South Carolina. And, and when he meets with Lincoln, Lincoln says to Robert Smalls, why did you risk your life and that of your family and your men and their families to sail the planter, that is the boat, out of Charleston Harbor under the eyes of the Confederacy? And Smalls gives him a one-word answer, freedom, which is exactly what Lincoln says a year later in The New Birth of Freedom. And I think there's a a real correlation there that goes back to Robert Smalls of South Carolina. And there's another example of the many African-Americans he met with, which was unusual for presidents at that, particularly he was the first to start having African-Americans in the White House. Well, I, I just think that, uh, and, I, and I can remember the history historians I've read over my 50 years who pick up on several of these things and say, well, Lincoln really was a true blue Southerner. He really didn't like black people. The emancipation was a sham, but they forget what else was said. And you, we've already talked about the Gettysburg Address People used to memorize that. Mm -hmm. My father, even growing up in a, in a southern town, they memorized the Gettysburg Address. And many Southerners would say, and you will address this too, well, had Lincoln lived, Reconstruction would have been different. In the second inaugural, uh, Lincoln was called out on this at the time and criticized it because several people understood exactly where he was going when he said that those who had fought for the Union and given their lives, that their widows and children would be taken care of. And he is including those black soldiers and women and children. So that is recognizing them as citizens. But it, it took th the three amendments, right. the so-called Reconstruction Amendments, uh, to make that a reality. So, so, Walter, I'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned the question of counterfactual history. And I, I want to point out, most of this book is not really about Lincoln. Most of the book is about the unfinished work. And most of the book really is after 1865. And it's what happened, what should have happened in America, and, and the essays go up to the very recent past. One of the points that Vernon and I make in the afterward, we argue that if you want to pick a, a central year in American history, 1877 might be as good as any, recognizing that, of course, Reconstruction really did not end in one year, and that if you want to see the defining event, I think, in the next 150 years plus of American history, it's the destruction of Reconstruction and the failure of Reconstruction and determined effort that really set in place the future course of American history in terms of race, to some extent in terms of labor, in terms of a whole range of things. It, it's one of the points we make that historians today, or a number of historians today, assume too quickly that Reconstruction was doomed to failure because white racism was so thick, so incorrigible that there was no alternative. And I guess we argue that that did not have to be the case. And you end up arguing, you know, how history might have been different. We say in the afterward, everywhere in the Western Hemisphere, after emancipation, in the West Indies, in Cuba, it was disappointing 
formerly enslaved people did not achieve what they wanted in the aftermath of emancipation. But I think nowhere in the Western Hemisphere were anticipation so high as in the American South, and the results ended being so completely disappointing. You know, I mean, the problem with counterfactual is you don't know what happened, but I think there are reasons to think that um, Reconstruction could have been different and, and I think Vernon probably wants to add something here to this. You know, I think you've been very eloquent. I, I have often said, though, and Walter and I have discussed this, uh, you know, everyone is fascinated by the Civil War. People look for the identity of America in the Civil War. And that's understandable when you think about how many people lost their lives, Americans, on both sides. And also it dealt with the issue that we struggle with still today. What is the role of people who are perceived as different? We might call it multiculturalism today. But I really think the identity of America and what Pete and I have argued is if it's not in Reconstruction, I really don't believe you can separate Civil War and Reconstruction. But if it's not there, it's hammered out during Reconstruction. I, I, I do not believe that Reconstruction really failed in a broader sense because it laid the foundations so that Benjamin E. May's parents talked to him about Robert Smalls and the black legend and the hopes of Reconstruction uh, that lays this foundation of sometimes I how could African-Americans have been so optimistic and so patriotic? after what had happened to them. But you see that belief in sort of highlight of Reconstruction, and though it's, I think, unfortunately not studied enough or emphasized enough, I think it is probably the most important period in American history. And certainly in South Carolina was one of the most progressive periods of uh, history, certainly the Constitution, the introduction of, of public schools, the building of roads, uh, trying to use tax money to build infrastructure and support the people of the state, uh, and brings out the very issues that we deal with today okay. in Congress. What is the role of the state? And actually, the 1868 Constitution, uh, the only one adopted by a vote of the right. people, uh, brought home rule to the counties. That's right. So, but when I was in grad school, there was a wonderful old curmudgeon professor, William Foran, who taught Southern history. And it was the question on my comps. He said, how many reconstructions have there been in America? Well, he talked about that. Obviously, we're talking about the period that was then defined ending in 1877. He considered the New Deal in terms of the South a reconstruction and we were already and we were entering the civil rights era in the late 1960s and he said this is going to be another reconstruction I was just on uh, Fox Carolina for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and I was doing some background reading in South Carolina about the Clausen's Bakery strike, and Jesse Jackson brought in Martin Luther King Jr. And the editorial was a little upset from the Greenville News because Martin Luther King Jr. there in Memorial Auditorium in Greenville called for a second reconstruction. That was his words, calling for a second reconstruction in South Carolina and the South. And I loved that, you know. I I had not seen that uh, uh, phraseology before, but it was right there in Greenville. So, so we quote people, I mean, as early as the 1940s, people were talking about a second reconstruction. There have been books on second reconstruction, third reconstruction, fourth re It's like world wars, right? <laughs> like it, it, it's, um, but yes, and, and I think, you know, what is, re what is the reconstruction? It's like starting again, building again, has has not died, and the idea that America can write itself remains strong. The Dunning School saw Reconstruction as, as an aberration. I I think some recent historians are doing it the same, turning it on its head. It's saying that it, white racism made Reconstruction a unique period, and white racism sort of wreaked its, its toll on, which is true. And I think what we're trying to say is Reconstruction is part of the unfinished work of America, and every generation has to sort of try to reconstruct America, and it's an incredibly potent idea that, you know, remains central to, I think, 
the unfinished work of, of freedom. Mm -hmm. Somehow I... Faulkner came to mind about the past. The past is not past. You know, we we come. People forget, and why it's so central. I think that that students take history both in high school and college. Is we we are here because we were somewhere else before, and how did we get to where we are, and why it's not a blueprint for the future. You can learn from it and try not to make the same mistakes or at least be aware of the context of how you're moving forward because yesterday is history, and today we are moving toward a, another history. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Ronan Burton and Peter Eisenstadt about the essays in their book, Lincoln's Unfinished Work. Now I'm going to cycle back to what you were talking about was Reconstruction a failure or not? Because one of the things that did come out of Recon that did not end in 1877 was, and that was particularly true in South Carolina, of formerly enslaved persons becoming property owners. Right. It's a pretty powerful essay in there, I yeah. thought. I really liked that particular essay. I mean, in, in South Carolina, and it was interesting, particularly in the low country, uh, and I, I know that Bernie Powers and others have, have addressed this, but one of the ironies was that the enslaved persons in the low country rice plantations who worked under the task system were used to plotting what what needed to be done, and they were the ones who, who began to purchase land as soon as it was available. Georgia had the lowest percentage, our next door neighbor, but South Carolina uh, had quite a significant, and that's a, a pretty good comparison. Uh, and, you know, like with this franchising laws that, uh, you know, if you had property, uh, that made a difference, certainly in Georgia, and uh, probably, I, you know better than I do, South Carolina, where it mattered about being made to vote when they passed all the restrictive laws and things, but it does make a difference. One of our favorite essays in the book with, by Adrian Petty and Mark Schultz that talked about the question you're just raising about black land ownership in both Reconstruction South. And the figures are quite startling for people who assume that, you know, with the failure of 40 acres and a mule, that um, all blacks were sharecroppers. Their figures from 1910 show that on the average, about a quarter of all black farmers own their own land. In South Carolina, the percentage was 21%. In some states, I think particularly in the upper south, it was particularly higher. Virginia was 67%. Missouri was 57%. And, and it's really startling to think of that sort of history. And black landowners often were cores of community. They kept alive traditions of independence. It's an important way to rethink the history of the post-Reconstruction South, which is not to say that it wasn't as horrible for black people as current history indicates, but that despite that, Blacks were able to do everything they could to protect their independence, create their own livelihoods for themselves. And black land ownership is, is a key part of that, and, it, and, and it's one of the, more one of the most interesting essays it, in the book. It was, it was surprising me because I'd always known about St. Helena, the Beaufort area, and, of course, Penn Center and the preservation there. But to see how widespread it was beyond like you said, the coast and things. And one of the things I think we really haven't dealt with very much is storing this cultural idea that African-Americans in particular had been told they were not Americans. And, of course, they had been here their whole lives, most of them, and saw themselves as Americans. So I think it meant more about a place to be from, to have land ownership, why it's been so central and how they were able to hold on to it particularly at a time when many whites were losing their land. That, uh, but that, that's sort of unexplored, but an idea I've often thought about, this cultural idea of being from a place and home. And we know that now from the migration of African-Americans back 
to South Carolina, the reverse migration, seeing this as their home. Well, you mentioned Benjamin Mays earlier from Greenwood. His family were landowners. In fact, there were a large number of African-American landowners in Greenwood County and basically at least one black organized black community. And Peter, what you're talking about is not just the land ownership, but all aspects of life after between 1877 and 1890 in South Carolina, you had two different communities side by side. You had black churches, you had black cultural organizations. African-Americans, at least in this state, pretty much withdrew into themselves as they were excluded from the political world. They created a separate world of their own. I believe, Walter, I'm not mistaken, I believe South Carolina is the only state that set up a land commission during Reconstruction. Another thing people forget about, it's a more complicated history, but at least there was that effort of understanding the importance of land for African Americans. Yep. And I think yep. South Carolina is the only state that well, set that up, though they had initially had thought it was going to be a federal. In fact, the first, the first Freedmen's Bill that was vetoed had uh, provisions there to provide property for African-Americans. Well, and of course, the whole question of land ownership goes back to Sherman's decree of 40 acres and a mule. Because that didn't happen, people think that black land ownership did not. And it varied from state to state. And one of your predecessors in the Clemson History Department, Carol Blesser's book, was the first book published for the tricentennial History of South Carolina in 1970 was yeah. Carol Blesser's book on the Land Commission. Right. No, it's, well, it's a very so, good book. So, so I, I, I have an essay in, in the book on Jackie Robinson and his understanding of integration. One of the, the key aspects of his early life, he was born in southern Georgia, was he came from a family of landowners. And his mother's family owned their own land and they were AME church members. It gave Jackie Robinson, as he writes about, a sense of resourcefulness, a sense that he was not defeated. Now, mind you, he left Georgia for Pasadena, California when he was about a year and a half old, so he really didn't have any memory of growing up in the South. But it's just another example of how black land ownership even indirectly and even in places like California, could play a a key role in shaping people's personalities. For Jackie Robinson, it was the sense of belonging to America, believing that there was nothing, you know, his conception of integration was citizenship. He understood integration as demand for citizenship. It was not really about inclusion. It was important to, you know, for the Dodgers and other major league teams to hire black players, but that wasn't integration as he understood it. And he certainly wasn't alone. It was the demand for full citizenship. This is what I write about in my essay, but I think we can connect it to some of these things coming out of Reconstruction where African Americans demanded to be full citizens of the United States and they had to bide their time after 1880 and 90, but when the situation changed, you know, for various reasons in the 1930s and 40s, they were ready and demanded their full citizenship. And I really like what Pete does in his essay in particular to explain what integration meant when it becomes uh, important. I will just say that Jackie Robinson's concept of uh, integration is basically what Lincoln was arguing about citizenship as well. I think, in terms of that citizenship rights. One other example that's a great one, Walter, is Reverend Delane. That family were landowners. One of our best contemporary writers, Dory Sanders, descended from a generation of landowners in, in York County. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the subject, uh, a very big part of at least two of her books, Clover and Her Own Place. Their status in the African-American community wasn't as much for their education. It was because of their land ownership. It's a great, great point. And I think that's what also gave Reverend Delane that sort of courage or the what he did to 
get Thurgood Marshall and others to come to argue the case that becomes Brown v. Board. But as uh, others have said, too, it really was a South Carolina case. It was argued, and it was through the courageous work of those people that has changed America, probably influenced more than any other Mm -hmm. uh, court case. We really haven't touched on the three constitutional amendments much. And Peter, that's really your your area. You want to take that? It's more Vernon than mine, but Eric Foner um, has an essay in the book that's drawn on um, a book he recently published centered on the three Civil War and Reconstruction Amendments. Mm -hmm. The 14th Amendment is absolutely, the I think, the key amendment that came out of Reconstruction. And when we speak of how Reconstruction could have come differently, I mean, certainly part of it, and Vernon wrote about this eloquently in his recent book with Armand Dershner, is about how the Supreme Court almost immediately after its passage restricted and narrowed the meaning of, of the 14th Amendment mm-hmm and the Civil Rights Act, it took a century for the 14th Amendment to realize the, it, it breadth and scope during the 60s. It, it, it's really unfortunate that over the past last, past decade, the most important fruit of that the Voting Rights Act has been eviscerated in um, various Supreme Court decisions, and we don't know what its future is. But yeah, the new birth of freedom that Lincoln was speaking about, I think, was translated concretely most in, in, the, in the Civil War Amendment. Eighty percent of all cases shows you where the 14th Amendment has gone and our misunderstanding of it, uh, because it was clearly, of course, to give citizenship rights to the formerly enslaved and African-American. Eighty percent of all cases involve corporations, since corporations have become persons. And I'll just give a plug for a good thing Ben Tillman did. When Citizens United overturned what was called the Tillman Act, because Ben Tillman had, uh, at the time, the large corporations were not Microsoft or Facebook, but it was the railroads, and Tillman had been the sponsor of the legislation that tried to keep big money out of politics. All right. Well, that's that's not often mentioned in the story of Ben Tillman. That's right. Everybody has, just like we were talking about interpretations of Lincoln, everybody has, there's a subtext somewhere that has not. Yeah, I, and I like to show those complexities. You know, as, as I said, with Lincoln, he's not born the great emancipator. It goes in, in different directions. Uh, you know, not many people are aware that uh, Lincoln studied Calhoun for how to make an argument. And Calhoun's writing, he thought he was a great writer. I might differ a little bit, but uh, uh, you see that relationship to South Carolina. Well, there's one interesting essay, which we really don't have time to talk about, but it does raise the issue. It's about public history on the airwaves. And I don't want to get into that so much as what the authors concluded about historians have a responsibility to the general public. I agree. But why then— do historians continue to produce dense, unreadable treatises with little opportunity to cross over? I'm sorry, we've got colleagues who produce very narrow studies on their particular horse that they're riding, and nobody's going to read them. I mean, and, it's, and it's worse than that, Walter. So what they do read are not the historian's interpretation of history. But Bill O'Reilly's Lincoln book, I'm sorry, but we have a responsibility. I take very seriously being at a, at a state school or a state. I always want to teach in those public education places uh, just how important it is. And part of it, I think, not only is history not being taught so people learn how to write the, the history, but a lot of people aren't being taught to write. I, it breaks my heart, some of the papers I get today – I've got to wonder, am I going to spend all the time trying to teach them to write, or am I going to try to teach them history? Because they have not, at least they're coming to Clemson, I hope it's different at USC, they're coming to Clemson not very able to express themselves so that most people can understand. Gentlemen, Alfred. Can I just say that obviously we're running out of time. There are a number of other excellent essays in this book. 
Gavin Wright has an essay dealing with NAFTA. There's a fine essay on Lincoln and the Indians and the Sioux Rebellion during the Civil War. Um, essays on evangelicalism from Dwight Moody through um, Billy Graham. So we've only been able to touch on some of the excellent essays in this book, and I hope people... Um, as you say, buy a copy or go to the library and read it. And Walter, I just want to say thank you. This is the way we get this information out. This is public history. No one has done more for South Carolina history than you have, and this program has been central to introducing people to the importance of history and the importance of how our history relates to democracy and hopefully we'll continue to so thank you thank you for this opportunity well, well thank you for that but south carolina has a wonderful but complicated history and i'll make no bones about complicated that. is the right word yeah. every place in the world has a complicated history i south think Ca- i think south as carolina, usual south carolina is. leads peter uh, <laughs> peter i'm sorry yeah. <laughs> i would put us with the we're first in succession first in civil war first to challenge vote and first in complexity peter <laughs> <laughs> all right well peter eisenstadt and vernon burton i want to thank you both for coming down from clemson to be with us today on the journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was a pleasure having Vernon Burton and Peter Eisenstadt back with us, and Vernon, of course, has been with us many times. He's a great South Carolina historian. And the discussion of the legacy, the image, the influence of Abraham Lincoln that came out of this book is an important lesson, I think, just in history itself. What's a document? How do you evaluate it? Who said what? Things that we are discussing today and how they relate to South Carolina. And as Vernon Burton and I said, our wonderful state of South Carolina has an interesting but complicated history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.